Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation, taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes, which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. All right, we are moving out of chapter 3, and we're going to chapter 4 tonight, of the book of Revelation, steadily moving through the book in this study written by the Apostle John. Remember, he is on the prison island of Patmos, and uh, he is outwardly suffering because of his preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ within the Roman Empire. Uh, as we're studying right now in the book of Daniel, and as I'm studying ahead in the book of Daniel, you remember that we are talking through Daniel about four world empires the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. Uh, those four uh, compose the, a majority of, uh, of ancient time. However, there's never been a worldwide power in such a way since the Roman Empire. Uh, the Roman Empire was also the bloodiest of the four, and John suffered under that persecution by being put into this prison island uh, so that uh, he could not preach the Lord Jesus Christ anymore in the empire. Isn't it interesting, though, God gave him a book while he was in prison that has affected millions upon millions upon millions of believers, including us. Now, Revelation says tonight uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, that you and I are automatically blessed because we are considering and reading this Word of God. So tonight, you and I are already guaranteed by God's hand blessing because we're going into this study. Again, I remind you, the book falls into three very natural divisions. First, the Lord tells John to write what he has seen, and that is John's vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen, reigning Judging King, chapter 1, second division, write the things which are, and chapters 2 and 3. John writes seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. There are direct words of Jesus Christ to those churches. We have studied them, and now tonight we move into the third division of this book, and that is John's writing of the things that shall be hereafter. Chapter 4 is the beginning of God's prophecy regarding our world's future. So we're moving now into the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And tonight we take our first step into that prophecy, opening this chapter. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The words within God's word as we open this book and this chapter is this. After this I look, and behold, a door was opened in heaven... And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. This is a major transition within the book, and it is here. Uh, from as we see the transition for things that are going to come hereafter chapters 2 and 3 you will notice the word church 
saturates chapters 2 and 3 in these seven letters to the churches of Asia Minor. These, of course, the churches are the saved people through Jesus Christ who are at work in ministry in this world. And the church is mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 19 times. But when chapter 4 opens, from that point to the end of the book of Revelation, the church is never mentioned again. Why is that? Well, I believe I am a premillennialist. I believe that, uh, I, that the true church, and notice I'm saying the true church, the true servants, the true saved people of the Lord Jesus Christ are raptured out of the world before this time of punishment and tribulation begins. They are with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And the question is, how did the church get there? Well, St. Paul answers that question in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. If you uh, would like, you can turn with me there or at least write down that reference, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. The words of the Bible are these. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So St. Paul tells us in the book of 1 Thessalonians, as he writes to that church, how the church is raptured out of the world. So as I see it, the day is coming when Jesus Christ is going to take his own, his people, his saved out of this world before it goes through the outpouring of God's wrath and anger upon sin. And we call it the great tribulation. I believe that God is going to draw his chosen ones, his blessed ones, his saved ones out of this mess before the judgments are actually executed. The Bible also says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that God does not appoint his children, which would be the church, to unbridled wrath. God does not appoint his people to unbridled wrath. I also believe that as the salt of the earth, the Lord Jesus calls us the church, the salt of the earth. The church is the preservative that keeps... Uh, all the rot out of the world. Church is the preservative that's keeping some relative peace on this globe. It is our presence here standing on the word of God, standing for Jesus Christ that keeps this world in some form and fashion of peace. But when the salt is taken out, as when the church is raptured out, that's when the real rot is going to set in to this world and we will see that as we study through the book of Revelation. When the light is taken out, that's when the darkness sets in. And so we know that indeed the Lord loves his church, but at this point in time, we are here for a purpose as we give the good news of Christ to this world, as we are the salt of our society, but one day we will be drawn out and that's when all the trouble will begin as the church leaves this world. But now I, want to, I do want to make plain to you this. Remember that I said it is the true church that will be taken out of this world in the rapture. What about the dead churches? 
What about the churches like Laodicea in this world, which meet, but they serve no purpose? And they are filled with unsaved people and people who make a charade out of the Bible, uh, people who do no ministry. What about those churches? They will still be here. Uh, there's a theologian whose name is Dr. George Gill, and he puts it this way. There are going to be some churches which will meet the Sunday after the rapture, and they won't be missing a member. So the true ministering, serving, preaching, saved church of Jesus Christ is going to be raptured out of here. Uh, as we see the opening of chapter 4, uh, the church is raptured out, and the empty shells and the charades of some churches will still be left behind. But when the church, or true church is taken up, Paul says it's going to happen quickly, it's going to happen suddenly, and the uh, the phrase that we remember the best, and it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, the church will be taken out in the twinkling of an eye. Just like that, the church is going to be taken out. There will not be time for the lost to reverse course and make a decision for the Lord. It's going to be that quick, that sudden. Uh, if there's one thing that we see in Jesus' words about taking the church out of here, it will be sudden. It will be uh, very quick. But as I move on into chapter 4 here, I do want to make this point. As the living church is taken out of the world, and as God begins pouring his wrath onto this sin-filled globe, the opportunity for salvation is not closed. I want you to understand, people will be saved in the Great Tribulation. In those seven years, people will be saved. People will come to Christ as Lord and Savior, but it will not be through the ministry of the church. It will come in other ways, and we will see that as we travel through this great book. People can still make a decision, uh, but the true church is out of here. The church age is closed as the Great Tribulation begins. Now, as chapter 4 opens, we have a radical shift now from earthly things. As we've looked at chapters 2 and 3 in particular, we have studied earthly things and the existence of the earthly church. But now we're shifting focus as we begin chapter 4, looking at heavenly things. So tonight, we are going to read the entirety of chapter 4. Actually, it's only 11 verses, but I do want us to hear it. I'm going to start with verse 1 again so that we get the continuity of the entire chapter. So if you would, follow along with me in these 11 verses of chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne uh, in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. 
And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had the face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. May God add his blessing to the reading of this powerful chapter of his holy word. Now within this chapter, the veil begins to rise on the future of our world. There is one point that we have to keep in mind throughout Revelation. No matter how bad the great tribulation is going to get no matter how much havoc and terror that we see on this earth especially as the Antichrist rises to control never forget never forget chapter 4 God remains on his throne God never turns loose of the reins of control. He commands this whole flow of history. It has a purpose, it has an end, and God never loses control. He is always on his throne. Do I hear an amen? That is absolutely a part of the book of the Revelation. Now, as John is introduced to the throne room of heaven at the beginning of chapter 4, he sees three things. Number one, he sees God Almighty on his throne. Number two, he sees 24 elders, 24 thrones surrounding the great throne. And number three, he sees four living creatures praising the one on the throne. Now, the King James Version calls them beasts, but actually a better translation is creature. Now, I think it's so interesting to read John's entire description of God Almighty. Look at verse 3 once again. John says, And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Can you imagine? looking at God himself and condensing it down to one sentence. That's exactly what John does. Uh, I, I suppose John 
uh, came to the point of realization that if I were to write down everything that I see or all the emotion that courses through me as, as I am looking at the very throne of God and the one sitting on the throne, I could write and write and write and write. I could fill the earth with the writing. Do you remember at the end of his gospel, uh, the last verse of the gospel of John 21 verse 25 it says this and there were also many other things which Jesus did the which if they should be written every one I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written so John at the close of his gospel said if I wrote down everything that Jesus did the world would be filled with the books in the same way I'm sure that same thought coursed through his mind that if I were to write down everything that I see about the throne of God and God Almighty sitting on his throne, the world could not contain all the books. So he condenses it to one sentence, one sentence about God. Uh, he, he couldn't linger any longer. He had to move on. I think maybe perhaps... When God said, I want you to write down things that you see hereafter, the facts were pouring in so quickly, he had to be sure that he kept on writing so he didn't fall behind. So he condenses his sight of God to this one sentence. God's appearance then is described in this way. He says, when I saw God, here's what I saw. I saw two rocks and a rainbow. That's what I saw in the appearance of God, two rocks and a rainbow. When John looked at God, he saw a jasper stone, and that is a diamond. He saw a diamond. And now, of course, if you look at my wife's diamond, that's a pitiful little rock. Uh, you know, I was right poor in seminary, and, and that's when I bought it, so it's, it, uh, it shows that I was poor. Uh, however... When John sees God, he sees the brilliance and the shining and the refraction of a, a diamond. God Almighty shining and light-filled and indescribably beautiful. But also notice that John says the diamond is primarily reflecting the color of another stone. It is reflecting the color of the sardine stone or the sardius stone. That is the ruby. So while God's countenance reflects all light, the blood red color of the ruby is reflected in this diamond. And of course, that stands for symbolically the blood that Jesus shed so that we could see God Almighty on his throne. You know, I don't think we'll ever be able... J. Vernon McGee says that he doesn't think that throughout eternity that we will ever be able to truly look upon God the Father. But if we get to see God in the way that John sees God, and I believe we will because if he allows one human being to see him in this way, he will allow us to see him. Anytime we behold God, however God allows us to do that, we will constantly be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why we can see him, because we come to God through his son and through that sacrifice. So the diamond is always reflecting the red of the ruby. 
we never forget it is by Jesus' blood that we're able to see God the Father. Then surrounding the throne is a perfect circular rainbow. And it is only one color. The rainbow is green. Of course, green is the color of life. And the rainbow, as we learned with Noah, is the symbol of promise. With the original rainbow, the promise was that the earth would never be destroyed with water again as it was in the day of Noah. However, the promise now is that the Lord God Almighty saves through Jesus Christ, his son. And we get life through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, God's only son. Now, surrounding the mighty throne of God are 24 thrones, and on them sit 24 elders or leaders of the faith. Many scholars agree that 12 of those 24 represent the faithful patriarchs of the Old Testament, those who were faithful in the days before Jesus was born in the manger, the days before Jesus went to the cross and was resurrected from the grave. Then the other 12 represents uh, those leaders of the church of the New Testament, uh, perhaps the 12 disciples, but at least are 12 representatives of the faith after Jesus was born on this world and after his resurrection or death and resurrection. So the elders then, those 24 elders, span all the age of those who are faithful to God up to this point of the opening of chapter 4. Now also notice in chapter 4, verse 4, that the elders have on white clothing and they also have crowns of reward on their heads. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5 adds a new dimension uh, to this picture. Uh, we, I want you to look at verse 5 again. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5 says this, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. This is a scene uh, of peace. Uh, we see God's brilliance. We see the elders in place. We see the rainbow in place. We see uh, the brilliance of the Lord reflecting the redness of the ruby. Uh, we can feel tranquility here. Now go on to verse 6. This is a very important uh, section here as we look at verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind now before we get to the beasts or the creatures let's think about that first part of that statement before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal uh, in studying for this session tonight I came across something very interesting about this sea of glass at the, this point heaven is calm God is on his throne. The rainbow is in place and, and all is well. The sea of glass is very calm. However, I want you to back up, look again at verse 5. Out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. There is a storm on the way. 
Everything is calm right now. And you all have been out on a summer night when it is so calm and peaceful, but out in the distance you hear the rumble of thunder and you know a thunderstorm is on its way. That's exactly what we see here in the book of Revelation. Everything is calm at this point, but there's a storm that is coming. But I want you to look at this sea it says that there's a sea of glass. You will notice that it is very tranquil. It is so calm that it looks like crystal. You can see there's not a ripple in it. It is so calm. However, supposedly, if you look at it this, in this fashion, and I, I think it's very accurate, this sea stands for that section of earth or that part of the earth from which all of the great tribulation arises. The storm is going to stir up this sea. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Right now, the, the sea is very calm, but I want you to see it at its most disturbed point. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, and it says this, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy this is the rise of the antichrist but notice where the antichrist comes from he comes from out of this sea so at the beginning of revelation you see a calm sea as calm as crystal on the top but then as the turmoil continues and as the storm grows the sea is uh, is, is uh, frothy and it's, it's stirred up and at its worst point of the storm the Antichrist rises out of this sea at the worst of the storm now let's make one more move go to Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 after the great tribulation is over and I've read this verse so many times in so many services and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. The great tribulation is over, and it will never return again. Nothing will ever come out of that sea to stir up God's creation again. It is gone. So at the beginning, we see it calm. In the height of the great tribulation, we see it stirred up, and at the end of of revelation it is gone but at the beginning in chapter 4 uh, it is very calm until the great tribulation begins so the storm is coming now here's one more addition to this picture of the throne room around the throne are four creatures uh, chapter 4 verse 6 the word beast in the King James Version is really not as accurate as creature the Greek word is zoa and it means a living being or a creature of God. Notice that these four creatures were the same in some ways and they were different in other ways. Uh, all four of them had eyes on all sides. Uh, nothing escapes their attention. They are vigilant. They are alert surrounding God's throne. Nothing, my mother had eyes like that. Nothing escaped her attention. So it is with these creatures, eyes all around. They see everything that is going on. Every creature had six wings. Uh, the living creatures do not sleep. They are constantly chanting a trinity of holies. 
holy, holy, holy before the throne of God. As you know, the word the number three is very perfect. The word holy is a perfect word. And so they're chanting holiness before God in a perfect way over and over again in these trinity of holies. If you remember Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, when Isaiah beholds God, he sees the angels of God chanting the same thing before the throne of God. So God is perfectly holy. And God is eternal. This chanting of holy, holy, holy will never end. It goes throughout eternity. Now, as John takes note of these creature similarities, he also writes down their differences. The first creature looks like a lion. The second creature looks like a calf. The third creature appears as a human being. And the fourth creature appears as an eagle. These four beings symbolize that God has dominion over all of his creation. The lion symbolizes wild animals, both on land and in the sea. The calf symbolizes the tame, domesticated animals of the earth. And of course, the human face on that creature symbolizes all humanity. And the, eagles, uh, the eagle symbolizes the birds of the air. Now, as chapter 4 closes, I want you to notice that heaven is a realm of praise, constant praise. As these four creatures give honor and glory and thanks and blessing unto God, the 24 elders then leave their throne and they fall on their face to worship in the holiness of God before his throne. Now, remember, all of them are representatives of the age of faith the Old Testament patriarchs and those of the New Testament and all the people of God are worshiping him in this moment. And I want you to notice the most significant act of the elders as they worship God. The most significant act, the thing that they do is they remove their golden crowns from their heads and they cast their crowns at the feet of God Almighty. And they cry out, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Golden crowns. They remove them from their heads and they cast them to the feet of our holy God. Now the question is, how did they get the crowns in the first place? Well, I believe that St. Paul explains it. He told the church at Philippi that his successful ministry with those Christians was his joy and his crown. I believe that crowns are a reward that God gives to his people. The crown is a heavenly reward for our earthly faithfulness to our God. But you will notice that we're not going to strut around heaven uh, so we can call attention to ourselves at how well we serve God by strutting around with a crown on our head but rather we cast our crown of reward at God's feet in thanksgiving that he has given us the opportunity to serve him, that he's given us the strength and the blessing that we might be his people. So we say in heaven, Lord God, any accomplishment that I had on this earth is ascribed to your blessing and to your glory and to your honor. It's not about me, Lord. That's the statement that's going to characterize heaven. It's not about me. 
This crown is not about me. It is about you. I cast my crown at your feet. It's all about you as my holy God. That's what the elders say, and that's what we will say. Personally, I want a crown. Now, I do believe, and the Bible, I believe, is very specific, that there will be people in heaven who do not have a crown of reward. They are saved, but they never entrusted their lives to ministry in such a way that they brought fruit in the kingdom of God. You agree with me? I believe there will be the lack of crowns in heaven. I want a crown, not for my glory, but I want to be productive in the kingdom of God in these days that I have something to offer to my God in thanksgiving for all eternity. I believe that, that the, the Greek language, as we talk about the elders casting their crowns before God, the Greek language doesn't indicate that they do it once and it's done, but it's done over and over and over again in thanksgiving, Lord. Thank you for letting me serve you. It's all to your glory. It's all about you. I give you my crown. Thank you for letting me serve you. I want a crown. Not for my glory, but that I might present thanksgiving to God for all eternity. Don't you want a crown? We better be busy. We better be productive in the kingdom of God because I believe that serving him and serving his church and serving in ministry is certainly, like Paul, our joy and our crown. Christian, what do you want your crown of reward to say? How are you giving your life that you know in these moments that one of these days he will present you with that crown. Tonight I pray, perhaps from our hearts, that we will come to this altar and we will say, Lord, I want to be serious and surrender to you and I want to entrust my life to you in such a way that one of these days I can thank you for all eternity that you allowed me to be productive in your kingdom for those few short years that I had on earth. Thank you for saving me through the blood of Jesus. Thank you for giving me talents that I might serve you. Lord, I want to give you my talent. I want to give you my energy so that one day I will receive that crown of reward, not for myself, but to present to you for all eternity to thank you that you let me serve you. You let me be your servant.